John chapter 9, verses 1 through 34 says this, And as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but it looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, and the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. Verse 13. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus had made the mud and opened the eyes was the Sabbath. When the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight, he put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received his sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked him, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, they would be thrown from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, ask him, he's of age. So a second time they summoned the man who had been born blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, speaking about Jesus. Verse 25, he answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? I love that comment. It's like, zinger. Um, they ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied to this man who had been healed, and you were trying to teach us, then they threw him out of the synagogue. Today as we continue on in our series, Be Still, I want to speak to you from the subject, Characters for Consideration. Characters for Consideration, as we look at how we respond when facing the truth of pain and suffering and hurt, especially in the lives of others. Would you pray with me just one more time this morning? Father, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for this moment that we have together. God, I pray in this moment that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, that you would speak to us. God, as our hearts are softened and our ears are open, I pray that you would speak to us right now. We are listening. We need your voice. May these be your words, not my words. In Jesus' mighty name, come on and everybody shouted. Amen. Amen. I'm going to throw my wife under the bus this morning, but I have total and complete permission to do so. This is one of the few times I've actually asked her if I can have permission. Um, <laughs> but uh, 
My wife has this, this inclination to laugh at certain moments that in other, in other people's lives you wouldn't laugh at, mainly when people run into things. Um, I have a propensity to, to running into things. My son has the same propensity, and so occasionally I'll run into a wall, not realizing the wall's there, although the wall's been there for years, and, and in different moments, but she will laugh if you run into a glass door, if you trip over something, um, in public places especially. Um, she is the least sympathetic person. She finds it hilarious. Is there anybody else in the room like that? Can we be honest at church this morning? All of you. Okay, so um, I'm just playing. So that's her, that's her way of, of dealing with it and coping with it. The interesting thing is, is that there's others of you in the room, the other half of you that didn't raise your hand, that are like blown away if somebody does that and you will, aid, like you will run to their aid, right? You'll help them up, you'll be crying for them, you'll be devastated, I cannot believe, are you okay? You'll bandage up their wounds even if they don't have wounds, like you'll do everything possible, you'll pull out the AED and they're like, I don't need the AED, you need the AED. You'll perform mouth to no, then stop there, right? <laughs> There's all these different ways of dealing with pain and, and suffering. We all have different ways of engaging it and looking at it. And it's right here in this moment that we read of some different characters that assessed this man's plight in different ways. And that's what I really want to spend the line share of our time looking at. This weekend, I want to take us in a bit of a different direction. Like I said last weekend, this series is not going to be so much linear as, as much as it's going to be floating around different thoughts and perspectives as we tackle the issue of our minds, anxiety, depression, mental health, suicide, things like that. Last weekend, we looked at having a mind that is still, how that happens and what the Bible says concerning our thoughts and that which we dwell on. Today, we're going to zoom out a bit as we deal with some perspectives that many people, including us, all of us sitting in this room, have when it comes to dealing with hurting people. I want to give this disclaimer today is that I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender, <laughs> meaning this, my explicit goal today is to offend all of us because I'm going to point out all of us in this message because we sit in one of these different places and spaces. See, the truth is, is that if we don't face this issue, our response to things, then our ability to be servants to those who are hurting diminishes substantially, and any other discussion on this topic then proves itself to be irrelevant and unfruitful. The issue of the mind, mental health in general, has become a topic that has impacted faith, the faith community in a very real way over the past decade, but especially over the past few years. From pastors and leaders to husbands and wives and children, businessmen, businesswomen, artists, educators, the topic of the mind and mental health has impacted people on a very real level. And the community of faith, Christians, have struggled, albeit botched it a few times, come on somebody, when dealing with this issue. So we've got to deal with it head on. We've got to talk about these things and I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to retract from dealing with them. And one of the greatest reasons for the mismanaged handling of issues like this and others is because many times as the church we struggle with growing in our maturity and therefore become both emotionally and spiritually unhealthy, crippling our ability to deal with some of the more weightier and complex issues that people deal with. And so here's what we do. We come up with surface level sound bites to try to deal with subtraining and issues. Did you hear that today? 
We come up with surface level sound bites to try and deal with subterranean issues. We throw out 140 characters on Twitter hoping that's going to get our point across when really at the end of the day, when they come across, they're just bullets and a weapon aimed at somebody who's hurting. And so today I want to take a look at a few perspectives that we tend to have when it comes to these issues that we face. And we're going to do this by taking a look at some characters of the story and the perspective they had in reference to the blind man. Now, the blind man is not representing for us mental issues and disorders and everything like that. What, what he's representing for us in this moment is, is any of us who struggle with these things, but especially in the topic of consideration during this series, these issues. That the church is handled, albeit in some funky ways at times. So five responses, five characters that I want to look at this morning. I need your help every shot. Number one, first one is this, is the response from the disciples shows us this. Logical reasoning over compassionate response. Logical reasoning over compassionate response. As he was passing by, the man, uh, he saw the man blind from birth, from birth, from birth. He was blind from birth. Watch what they say. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So Jesus throws in, neither this man or his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Now this type of reasoning and processing comes from the word theodicy. And it's, this is what it means, the attempt to defend God's omnipotence and goodness in the face of the problems and issues that we face in the world. In other words, the disciples couldn't reconcile the issue that this man was facing. And so what they needed to do is they needed to start the blame game. You ever been there before? And the only thing that they thought to do is to move it away from God and put it on the actual blind man himself. Now, there was some common reasoning and some philosophies and ideologies at this time that for sure many commentators and theologians believed had been drafted into the disciples' lives. One of those teachings that was common was that a baby could sin in the womb. And so therefore, when it was born, it would come out with the mars and the marks of sin. They also believed a common teaching that had been drafted from different philosophies that you could have sinned in a previous life and or your parents' sin would then be imputed into you. All of those not true, Jesus sweeps in as the disciples start trying to work through logical reasoning with this issue. He sweeps in and he says, this is not the issue, guys. This is not the issue. In other words, it's that moment that we feel like we have to defend God from the frustration that is present in suffering and affliction. Yet while many times well-meaning, this type of agenda causes the afflicted on the other side of the questioning to feel distanced, objectified, ridiculed, shamed, and rejected. You been there before? New American Commentary puts it this way, human beings generally seek for answers or rationale that can help them deal with the hard questions of pain and suffering and evil. Like most confused human beings, the disciples assumed that the problem would be more tolerable if they could probe the questions of why. Accordingly, they sought to assign blame for the man's unhappy state of life. However, Jesus didn't engage in the theological discourse. He engaged in applicable ministry. 
See, the disciples show us what happens when people's afflictions and suffering and pain become our soapbox for what many times is irrelevant and inappropriate examination. This is what happens when we say things like this, if you had more faith, then maybe. If you would pray more, then. Somehow relating it to if my goodness was gooder, then his goodness would be gooder. But when we do the type of goodness math that we do sometimes, we strip away the goodness of a good father who says, regardless of the plight that you are in, in the situation, in the circumstance, I love you, and therefore my love directs my miraculous power, the hope that you can have in me, and the grace that I have for your life. When we do this, we distance ourselves from people. In other words, we try to rationalize pain and suffering. And then we tend to minimize the actual evil that is real and at work in our world, the type of evil that Paul would talk about in Ephesians. Then we inadvertently chalk up all human pain and suffering to the existence of our own personal sin and decisions, which is shallow and unhelpful for those facing the tragedy of pain and suffering from birth. This in turn distances us from the very place that we've been called to reside, where people are at. Where people are at. Author Brett Ehrman would lament in his book, The God Problem, as he writes, what I find morally repugnant about many such books, speaking about books on pain and suffering from a faith-based perspective, is that they are so far removed from the actual pain and suffering that takes place in our world, dealing with evil as an idea rather than as an experienced reality that rips apart the lives of people. Don't we do what the disciples do sometimes? Because they had equal to opportunity offender. Don't worry, there's four other points. <laughs> the Bible exposition commentary puts it like this. The disciples did not look at the man as an object of mercy, but rather as a subject for discussion. One psychologist wrote this recently for a Christian publication. I routinely ask my patients, and I quote, who are members of local churches if they have shared their struggles with their pastor, small group leader, or anyone in a discipleship role. Some wish they hadn't. One woman with bipolar illness told me that the behavior of her local church re-traumatized her in a different manner. I now feel, she would say, spiritually defective to go along with my defective mind. She continued, I feel so alone at church. I invite people over for meals and try to make friends, but when they find out that I am bipolar, they either preach to me about sin and healing or ignore me. I refuse to be invisible about my illness. However, I long for true true friendships and community. I don't need a sermon. I need a friend who will see me as a person. I need a hug, and I perhaps need someone who will share recipes with me. See, if we're not careful like the disciples, like the books that Brett Ehrman laments about, we can become a cold and closed off batch of believers that simply see the pain of people's lives as an opportunity for discourse rather than a moment for ministry. People are not subject matters. They are God's creation. (laughs) 
So the disciple shows us what happens when we apply logical reasoning over compassionate response. And I want to go on record of saying this because so many people ask me, well, then why? Why do people go through hurt? Why do people go through pain? And here's my answer. I don't know. And I'm okay with saying that. Now, I can recite some theological things that I've learned along the way, and if we look at the Greek and the Hebrew, and I can try to get all philosophical with you and say this, 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 and this, and at best, my attempt to do that would only come here in relationship to God's perspective on everything. And so you know what I don't try to do? To the best of my ability, I don't try to reason it. I don't try to rhyme it. I don't ask who did this or who did that or why did this and why did that. What do we do? We see the people, the person, for who they are. A child of God. So the disciples show us what happens when we apply logical reasoning over compassionate response. Number two, Rashad, number two. Then there's the response from the crowd, which is conflicted opinions surrounding Jesus' ability. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but it looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one, I'm the one. So here you have this discourse starting to happen. They couldn't recognize who this man was because they couldn't get their minds wrapped around the idea that there was a person named Jesus who could change everything. And I believe one of the greatest issues that exists within the faith community today is a lack of genuine conviction that God still and can and will perform miracles. It is this lack of faith that causes us to build churches that are anchored in programs and lacking in power. So the only way that we think to minister is by build another program. Let's create another social calendar event. And this happens when we see people and the issues that that people face is impossible to overcome improbable and outside the scope of God's sovereign, loving, and powerful hand. We have to be a church. We have to be a people that does not simply reside in the day-to-day facilitating of programs and management of social calendars, but rather a church that is birthed and anchored in the power and presence of a very real God who does very real miracles in very real people. See, the crowd represents the desire to remain normalized and bipartisan when it comes to who Jesus is and that which he does. The crowd seeks to keep things palatable, docile, typical, regular, ordinary, and routine. And then we go build normal churches. Some of you are like, this is not normal. (laughs) There's nothing normal here. (laughs) But we haven't been called to build normal or be normal. Maybe you've been around that a little bit. We just we need to make church a place where people can come in and they can they can it, it, it's palatable, it's easy to swallow and everything like that. But how many of you know when you're hurting, it doesn't matter how big the pill is, I'll still swallow the pill. And so sometimes what can happen is we can oh that this and that and what that's not normal and that's not normal. But here's the deal: Jesus didn't die a normal death, so I can't live a normal life. The gospel, it's not normal. Have you heard some of the things Jesus has said? If you open this book, you're like, what? He went twilight one weekend, right? He's like, eat my flesh, drink my blood. (laughs) Team Edward. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's crazy. And the Bible says people left him, rightfully so. I was on that line. I was like, Jesus, you stepped too far. He said things like, hate your brother and your sister and your mother and your father. Did he really mean hate people? No, 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 no. But what was he saying? You're going to have to give up everything for me. That's not normal. That's hard. What did he say to the rich young ruler? Give up everything. Follow me. Jesus does the opposite so many times to what is comfortable. He's countercultural. He's abnormal. But the thing is, he wanted to see a people in a church built that says this, the gates of hell could not prevail against. He didn't say that he came to maintain the status quo and keep things orderly and regular. No, he said this in Luke 14, or 4, 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the crowd shows us what happens when we are conflicted with Jesus' ability to do the miraculous. Number three, we shout number three. The response from the Pharisees. They were more concerned about the management of a model than the restoration of a man. Think about this. This is the crazy. This is, this is what we see when we go through this storyline. And, 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 and as I sat here going, God, how am I going to go through these 34 verses in church today? We've got to work through this. Like, and the, the Pharisees, they, they make me stumble. I struggle with them so many times. Their adherence to a model. They were frustrated at Jesus because he healed a man born blind from birth. He did it on a day they didn't like it. The Sabbath. And if left to the Pharisees, they would have just walked by him. Why? Because it was the Sabbath. Born blind, begging. Sorry, buddy, can't help you today. We've got to keep this day holy. So Jesus goes, no, 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 no. Let me show you what the most holy thing is. Mud, mud, eyes, eyes, black, go, rinse, healed. Yeah, how about them apples? (laughs) And he did it on purpose. That's the crazy thing. He knew. It's not like Jesus was wandering around like, oh, oh, today's the Sabbath. No, really. They turned their clocks back and everything. They all showed up on time. Yeah, wow. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew it was the Sabbath. And I could almost picture him in his mind going, I can't wait for this. These Pharisees are going to lose their mind. So he goes and heals. You know what's interesting about the whole thing? If you, if you, if you look into like different histori- like historical realities that the Pharisees were facing, it was unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. And it was unlawful to use mud the way that he did, the way that Jesus did, because the mud was unclean. Here's my problem. What about the spit? <laughs> right? This miracle would have never happened today. Never would have happened. Why? First question, is that mud organic? Because <laughs> if it's not, it's not going to my eyes. <laughs> Everything about this was scandalous. See, the Pharisees were the keepers of tradition, the managers of borders that were never to be breached for the sake of what they deemed holy. 
respectable and appropriate. Jesus, on the other hand, broke the rules, crossed the borders and the boundary lines in order to touch and impact the lives of people, and in this case, the life of a, a, a man born blind. See, too often we are anchored to a model that leaves people at a distance rather than the mandate to draw near to serve those who are hurting, broken and far from God. Here's the deal. When our model distances us from people, then we have to abandon the model in order to be with people. Now, don't hear something that I'm not saying. I'm not saying abandon our orthodoxy. Uh-uh. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy, these two words. Our orthodoxy is our, is our fundamental beliefs in, in the Bible and what Jesus says. But here's the problem that we do, is that we so many times manage our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy in inappropriate ways, and we start making our orthopraxy, the things that we do, our orthodoxy. We say, drums, bad. Dancing, bad. Can we not turn our orthopraxy into bad or good? Because we shift models in order to reach people. Models change, the message stays the same. We will always preach Jesus and him crucified, the cross before us and nothing else. But we may do that through... You saw the cross through that, not through this. <laughs> you looked at that and you're like, I now know of a place called hell. <laughs> Our model. Some of us today are bothered at the fact that there has been different expressions of creativity over the past few weeks. And we're caught up in the model issue, failing to realize that last weekend alone, 22 people said yes to Jesus. And I think it was something like 12 in the 10 a.m. service this morning. Already. We get tripped up in Jesus. <laughs> the Pharisees, they argued over these things. They were tripped up. Jesus is like, listen, I'm going to shift the model. I'm going to make mud. I'm going to do these things in order to prove a point. The Pharisee shows us what happens when we're more concerned about the management of a model than the restoration of a person. Number four, everybody shout number four. The response from the parents. The response from the parents show us this. Apathetic distancing instead of empathetic engagement. Apathetic distancing instead of empathetic engagement. John 9, 18 through 22, the Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who received sight. Watch what happens. This is the man's parents. They asked him, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees and we don't know how he opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. Meaning that he'd come to the age of 12, so we know that this, this young man was above the age of 12, 12 and above. He will speak for himself. Watch why. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone's, and this was the Pharisees, all right, not, not all of the Jewish people, but the Pharisees in this moment, had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, the Messiah, Jesus, they would be banned from the synagogue. 
See, Jesus shows us the complete and total opposite through all of this. The opposite way of living and being and responding. The Bible over and over and over again shows Jesus having compassion. And can I tell you this morning, church, compassion is the necessary ingredient for changing the world. And compassion is only possible when we are willing to dwell among the world, and Jesus was our example. John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The God of heaven put skin on and lived with us. He observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And this was the fabric of who Jesus was. And so this is why the writer of Hebrews would then tell us this in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may have mercy and find grace in time of need. He meets us where we're at. Not put together, not whole, not perfect, but rather flawed, sick, broken, confused, lost. He meets us where we're at, and he takes upon himself who we are in order to say this. I know your name. Why? Because he's our empathetic savior, not a distanced God. He dwelt with us. He put skin on him took on humanity. And the problem with so many of us so many times is that we simply live in a place where there's apathetic distancing from the issues and plight that people are facing instead of empathetic engagement. And here's the deal. There are people right now in our world, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces who are hurting. They've got stuff going on in their lives. They're dealing with issues that so many people said it's not possible to be fixed. Nothing's ever going to happen and come from that. And we remain over here with apathetic distancing. But the reality is, is that every single one of us has been called to embrace the mess of the world around us. Because it gets on me when I embrace it. It doesn't get in me, but it gets on me. And then I come over here and I say, I'm with you. I'm for you. Jesus is for you. And it gets on me, but it doesn't get in me. It gets on me so I can love them and be with them and work with them and listen and cry and laugh and everything in between. It gets on me. Some of us are so scared of getting it on you. And so then we inappropriate take things like Romans and go, well, be in the world and not of the world, brother. No, 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 no. I'm in the world. It may not be in me, but it's on me. And some of us who are dealing with stuff up here right now, we're dealing with the weight of suicidal thoughts and bipolar disorders and depression and everything like that, simply are sitting here isolated at times, and I want you to know that this church is not a church of isolation. It's a church where we want to get it on us. (laughs) 
Here's the crazy thing. Stay standing. I'm going to ask everybody to stand to your feet right now. I had a gentleman come up to me after the first service. And I pushed him away, so I was like, hey, the paint's still wet. <laughs> and he grabbed me. I said, I just want to get it on me. Watch what happens through all of this, through everything that we just read. The man, born blind, says four things. He makes four statements throughout these 34 verses, actually technically 45, if you go all the way into John chapter 9 of this section. John 9, 11. The man born blind calls Jesus. The man called Jesus. John 9, 17 calls him a prophet. John 9, 31 through 33, he says this, if this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. John 9, 35 through 38, who is he, sir, speaking to Jesus after being asked a question that I may believe in him? Throughout this whole entire discourse, Jesus lived in the middle of it all. He got it on him. And this man, born blind, not knowing anything about Jesus, moved from seeing Jesus as a man to seeing Jesus as the God of the universe. And when we live like Jesus, when we love like Jesus, when we work with people like Jesus, when we cry like Jesus, Laugh like Jesus. We get it on us. People's lives are changed forever. And they don't, they don't see us. They see Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus.